Hello, friends. How you doing? This is uh, The Wrong Boys. And uh, we're welcoming you here to a special newly released, not newly recorded, but newly released previous bonus episode, current episode on your feed. Yeah, this was from the wild summer of 2021. You know, we didn't have a care in the world back then. <laughs> and we, <laughs> oh, looking back on those days. Oh, so, so young and free. Yeah. So yeah, we did a two-part episode called Platforms of Freedom, which is thinking about what maybe utopian social media might look like. It's something that our very generous patron community has requested uh, more than once. Different people at different times have suggested we unlock this for people. So we're going to do that. We're unlocking the first part today, and we'll be unlocking the second part very soon. Yeah, tape popped and uh, play button pressed. Warning, this episode of Seriously Wrong will redistribute your excess coolness points to people who are in need. People who aren't cool, don't have guaranteed basic coolness, uncool people will get cool points from you if you have like a lot of cool points and excess. In the future, in the long run, we want to abolish cool points altogether or assign cool points to actions rather than people. But that's too revolutionary for starting off with. Right now, it's just about redistributing the cool points, yeah. One step at a time. You keep your foot planted in what is while reaching for what could be in the future. And just to cut it off at the pass, before we get any emails about this, yes, you can keep your basic amount of cool points. You're always going to stay in the cool. No one has to be uncool for everyone to be cool, right? You just can't be too cool. If you want to roll with us, nobody can be too cool. You got to distribute those to uncool people, make them cool. Then everyone's cool. That's part of the contract. That's part of listening. Yeah, and people who are too cool, sometimes it can go to their head and they end up acting poorly in various ways. So I think it's it's to the benefit of everyone. That's why we take the points. Being too cool dehumanizes the too cool, not just the uncool enough. Right, because you can't just sit together where you have that inequality. You can't just be together as free people and just groove, you know, just hang out in the spiritual sense, just really hang out and just be present with each other. That cool inequality, it makes you live in a world. The more people that you treat as furniture in your world, the less people there are around to know and care about and love. And that's what too much coolness can do. And that's why we have the redistributive policy baked in. So that's the warning. Continue at your risk. Yeah. By continuing to listen, you have accepted the terms herein. Hey, that thing that the teacher said, they're wrong. They're wrong. And that thing that your comrade said, she's wrong. She's wrong. And that thing that your partner said, the thing that your mom told you in bed, they are also seriously wrong. No one knows anything, especially Aaron John. It's seriously, seriously, seriously wrong. Seriously, seriously, seriously wrong. It's seriously, seriously, seriously wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. My name is Sean, and by the process of elimination, you know the other voice is Aaron. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> We're the two voices that will guide you through this conversation today. Thank you. I wanted to talk about this idea that's been floating around in our discussions in my head for a while now, but we haven't really talked about it in specific. The idea is the platforms of freedom. 
to explain what that means, I want to start by talking about this concept from Murray Bookchin. We talk about it in our Social Ecology Trilogy that we did with the Institute for Social Ecology, the forms of freedom. Bookchin's basic idea, and it's just a way of describing an idea that a lot of people share. There's a lot of ways to get at this sort of concept that Bookchin was getting at here, but I think this is a really profound and useful metaphor. Forms of freedom are institutions, social institutions, which enable people to have types of freedom that they couldn't have on their own in comparison to a sort of naive anarcho-capitalist libertarian idea of freedom, which is all about individual freedom without looking at the context that it arises from. The forms of freedom idea places that in the context of saying, well, actually, the ability to do things on an individual basis is across the board enabled by these institutions, these social contexts, these communities. And that gives us a framework to talk about the future, about what ought to be and what we should build in society, which is institutions and forms which enable greater freedoms for individuals, but also create new types of freedoms. In Bookchin's case, he's talking about using democratic assemblies as a way to create political freedoms in society that are unlike the lack of freedom of our current political system. When I think about forms of freedom, institutions that enable the context from which freedom can emerge, one really important aspect or what an institution in this sense is, is this human edifice that we've made in terms of how we're going to relate to each other with regards to specific important things like collective decision making, regulating rules and defining interactions in such a way that helps facilitate people working together and deciding together in the best way possible. So it's about the social realm, defining different ways that we can relate to each other, setting that up as something that has this structure that we can participate in and change to meet our needs together. And that structure of defining relationships and having it be the way things are, that's kind of what an institutional form is. It's the form of the social realm in a way. I found this idea really interesting. And we talked about it a lot since encountering it and thinking through it. But the combination of words kept on sticking in my head, platforms of freedom, and they attempt to merge that idea into discourses around the socio-techno infrastructure of society, not just social media, but all sort of internet networked enabled media and all social realms within that. It seems to me like we have these platforms, not just social media platforms, but other platforms, not just Facebook, but also Wikipedia not just Twitter, but also the Pirate Bay, Discord, IRC. There's been all these different places where types of communication, networking, freedom exist in these ways that are abridged by the profit motive. It really strikes me as a discussion worth having and something worth thinking about. What sort of frontiers could we have within the socio-technical artifice of the internet, social media, and so on, that can enable higher levels of democratic freedom and can give people not just the opportunity to vote on things, although voting on things is often superior to not voting on things, but really create a democratic society using technology using social technology, using the hardware that we already have in terms of phones and computers, the internet infrastructure we already have, using that to enable and create platforms and institutions which can enable political freedoms beyond our, I, almost, I didn't want to say wildest dreams, but no, beyond our wildest dreams. 
there's a real possibility to use technology this way if we think about it this way and set out to do it to maximize the political freedom of society using technological infrastructure which is a break from what Bookchin wanted to do, which is emphasizing face-to-face democracy. I feel like there's a real value in figuring this out because social technology could be part of the solution to the problem of democracy, the challenges of implementing democracy. There's going to be online cultural institutions. Face-to-face, I think, has a part and it all can work together in various ways, but a lot of this is going to have to happen online or just will happen online because it's available. I think it's just a fact that platforms like the Facebooks, the Wikipedias, Twitters, Pirate Bays, etc. are already cultural institutions. They are sets of rules that define social interactions within a certain sphere. If you go on Twitter, there's rules defining how you interact with people. You have to talk in sound bites. You can retweet, you can quote tweet, you can respond, you can heart. That's that's your available options. There's these guardrails set up on how social interaction happens on these platforms. And there's a lot of social critiques of the way that these platforms are designed to keep people addicted, keep them doom scrolling, keep them looking at advertisements, keep them angry so that they stay on the platform longer. You mentioned the profit motive being this incentive that's skewing how we're designing these major platforms in society, these major institutions of how we interact with the world. Twitter is a place where public people of all sorts make statements to the world all the time, and they get reported on by news journalism institutions. Twitter is a cultural institution at this point. The fact that the way that it's designed isn't designed with enabling freedom in mind, but designed with profit for Twitter's investors in mind is a social problem. That intention behind that is a social problem. And what intention do we want our institutions to have if they are going to be platforms of freedom rather than platforms of making Jack Dorsey money? Then for me, anyway, for us, I think it comes back immediately to democracy, defining how we can make platforms that are genuinely democratic using these kinds of technologies, but with a different intention behind them, I think is an incredibly important question, question for the ages. The shapes of these containers of these social networks like you're talking about has a profound effect on the outcomes that are created by them, like the 280 character thing or the way that outrage is incentivized and the way that media outlets have this financial incentive to tweak their headlines in ways that elicit certain reactions. And that all works in this gross stew of bringing out aspects of human potential by the design of the platform. The question is, how do we create those same types of container shapes, if you will, that enable human thriving and flourishing? And something in particular that I think is possible and desirable is creating a democratic space on the internet where the structure is set up to enable not arguing, posturing, and building a brand, but coming together to solve problems having processes that lead to solutions, that lead to conclusions, where disputes aren't just polarizing into camps and then trying to vote one side over the other. 
but to actually have an engaging process where people provide evidence for their claims in a structured way, where people can test and provide counter evidence and so on, but really ultimately at the end of the day, try to come to conclusions for the purposes of decisions being made. I know there's been software experiments with direct democracy and with things like citations and stuff like that being added to web pages or social media. I've seen things like this before. I think it's really possible and desirable to build a democratic platform of freedom that enables people to have a voice in the things that matter to them in a structured and fair way where they know that their voice matters, but they're also accountable to a system that enables decision-making to be successful. And I think that's something we should really try to put resources into as a society is to enable this sort of thing to happen and to encourage places where stuff like this is happening. Yeah, absolutely. The potential frontiers that are available through the raw potentials of this kind of information communication technology that we have, have barely been tapped. And they've mostly been tapped for reasons that are capital-backed, because in order to tackle these questions, you have to try a lot of things out, and you have to pay, in our society, a lot of engineers to work on building iterations of different things. It's a resource-intensive process to try and design something like a Twitter or like a way for people to interact. It should be like a Manhattan Project level effort. People always use that example as the time the government was just like, we're going to do it. We got to build an atom bomb. So they did it. They just did it. I don't trust our governments to just do this. So I'm not saying they should do it. But the effort into doing this and experimenting through this process is so important. And these frontiers are so barely explored at this point because this type of technology is so new. Computers aren't that old and the global internet is even less so. It's a wide open space currently shaped in horrifying ways because of who has power right now, but it is a beautiful wide open space. The Manhattan Project metaphor is sort of apt, but it's also just so grim. It reminds me of that book by Seth Klein that came out recently, A Good War. It's like the Green New Deal argument. We need to have a wartime mobilization against climate change. It makes perfect sense in terms of deploying a large scale of resources. But there's also part of me that's like, uh, it's, I don't, <laughs> war. Yeah, does it have to be war? We really want to do something like the Manhattan Project. And it's like, yeah, but just in the specific way of getting together a bunch of really smart people to achieve something in the shortest period of time possible by focusing resources on it. But instead of having a <laughs> instead of having a war on drugs or a war on terror, we're going to have a war on no democracy. We're going to have a war on anti-democratic institutions. We're going to have a war on climate change. We're going to have a war on platforms that don't enable the most human flourishing possible, that have any other impetus behind them other than to make people's lives better. It's probably the case that that is effective rhetoric because of the cultural capital that the military and there's like multiple holidays about war and soldiers in general. Society's order is kept in place. The legal system is kept in place by the threat of police and military. So people know what it means to go to war against something on a metaphorical level. But it is worth noting, I mean, when it comes to the war on climate change, it's not a literal war. There's no need for any sort of literal war. <laughs> it's just a metaphor about using a lot of resources to achieve something big. Do we have any other metaphors for that? Maybe the COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, we need to have a vaccine development cycle against climate change. 
Like we need to handle it in like two years or a year and a half. Yeah, it's a pretty good example. We need a cool the blank project name for it. The, the COVID-19 vaccine project. Doesn't have that ring, but... That's really interesting because, yeah, the COVID-19 development cycle for these vaccines around the world working in concert and achieving pretty impressive results fairly quickly in terms of development, although there hasn't been enough production and there's been a really unequal distribution of what has been produced. We should critique that vaccine apartheid. But yeah, there's no name for what we just did. There's no name for what the human species just accomplished by setting out to do something. It's interesting. We have the name Manhattan Project. It's flashy. It's a sexy title. <laughs> the Manhattan, ooh, the Manhattan Project. Like Manhattan's the type of drink. It's also a very special place. But the development of all these different vaccines, we don't have a sexy, cool name to show like what's possible for humans to do really quickly when we set out to do it. I guess Operation Warp Speed, but that's what Trump <laughs> called it. It has weird political implications. It is a cool name, but right, yeah, maybe we could. We need an Operation Warp Speed for climate change. That's definitely <laughs> yeah. true. But yeah, so we also need it for democracy and platforms. That's. Uh... <laughs> I mean, I guess the real issue with something like the Manhattan Project metaphor, the wartime metaphor, is it's all top-down hierarchical command assumed to be the structure of the things that can address these crises. Like the military is the place where there's commanders, everyone wears the same uniform, and it's defined by this hardcore competition over resources, territory, and clashing of power. The wartime mobilization that people talk about in terms of climate change or whatever is getting the whole of society to work together towards one project, not just putting a lot of resources into it, but having it be a process that brings as many people into the process of doing that work. And I think that aspiration to make a distributed process that anyone can participate on both when it comes to the development of these platforms of freedom, like we're talking about through collaborative commons where people can participate in open source projects and experimenting with this in groups and stuff like that. It applies in both the Green New Deal climate change context or in the democratic platform renewal <laughs> Manhattan projects, Operation Warp Speeds, which is that it really should be not something that's pushed down from the top, but something that is collaborative and participatory to the highest degree possible. Use the whole of the human population to achieve these grand scale historical things, I think should be our aspiration, which is really unlike the military. And it's really, really unlike the Manhattan Project. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking of like resource mobilization, but you're right to point out the form, the difference in form of organizing those efforts and what would be needed. It's hard to imagine a top-down military ordering people to build something that would create the effective collaboration platform tool that would make that type of military organization on a social level no longer seem relevant or necessary in any way because we have something much better now. So they probably wouldn't order that under that system. Yeah, the power structure invented to temporarily deal with the problem in a non-ideal way could potentially try to propagate its own method of power instead of distributing power. That's a real threat, I think. That's a good point. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by the vast and wonderful potentials of existing information technology and the ways in which our society undermines their development. Take, for example, Facebook, which has the beautiful, wholesome potential to help us make connections to our friends and our families and our communities and have richer, more thriving social lives. 
as well as the potential to help people participate in political life in a meaningful, organized way. And yet, it's corrupted by the profit motive and monopoly and the drive to command people's attention for as long as possible, to collect as much data as possible, incentivize conflict, not to help people connect better, but to sell it to advertisers and make money with that personal information about users from third parties. That's the real interaction. That's how that potential's been corrupted. Another example of this incredible potential that persists despite the misuse of the premises, despite the misuse by specific institutions, is the world of e-readers and e-books, or even the reading of books on phones, computers, tablets, wherever you can read things digitally. It has the potential to give everyone access to the entire library of humanity, all of planet Earth, and all languages. At a moment's notice, it could allow people to look into any topic, like Wikipedia, but have access to all of the sources, all of the studies, all of the books, all the scientific papers. That's possible. That's what the liberatory possibility of e-reader technology is, but it's corrupted by the profit motive and a social construction called intellectual property that walls people off with price walls from the vast majority of human knowledge and prevents human flourishing. Or take, as another example, ride-sharing apps like Uber, Lyft, etc. These have the potential to use what already exists out there in the world, the individual cars that people have, to connect people who have that to the people who need it and make transportation more accessible to more people and to do that in areas with holes in public transportation systems, in places where it's really needed. And in places where more cars on the road isn't going to be a problem. But this potential becomes corrupted by the profit motive. These companies underpay drivers in a race to the bottom, in a race to make the most amount of profit off of their backs and dispatch them to any area where they can make money, areas where they compete with existing public transit and clog up roads with unnecessary extra vehicles, providing multiple tiers of transportation based not on who needs it the most, but who can afford to call an Uber. A force that could make things more equal, contributing once again to more inequality in the system. Another example of this is search engines, you know, Google and Yahoo and I mean, just Google at this point. Uh, <laughs> search engines have the potential to help users find the information they need when they need it without limits. Advanced search functions can be used to help filter out the data you're looking for, and it can be made more fluent and easy for people of any skill level and any level of experience, even going so far as to having the help of a curator or someone who's helping them navigate the system for their first time. Search engines could be a way to catalog and access human knowledge in a user-friendly way that makes everyone in the world wiser for their access to it. The base level intelligence of our society can be increased by having systems for ensuring access to the information that people need to make decisions or to learn how to do things and so on. But in the current system, it's corrupted by the profit motive to create these cyclical arms races to game algorithms for advantage to make more sales or sell more scams. Search engines, they sell for pay to placement results. They call it advertising, but it's pay for placement results on the first page. They also alter results based on business or political interference or relationships with those sectors. The way that our system is set up right now does not allow search engines to reach their full potential because they have to focus all of their energy 
on the advertising side, on the segmenting side, and on the profit-making side, rather than helping people access information when they need it. So there you have it. Some outstanding, world-historical, revolutionary, beautiful potentials of information technology that still exist today despite the ways they are corrupted and undermined by the current society that exists. And it's always important to note that these potentials aren't gone just because they aren't being implemented just yet or because the opposite of them might be being implemented. The final part of the story has not been written yet. The question of whether this undermining will continue forever until society crumbles or course will be reversed and these potentials will be realized remains to be seen. So stay tuned to the future of society and the world and survive the waves of unpredictable weather upcoming to find out. Or if you dare to do more than sit and wait and watch, be a part of creation. Be a part of the co-creation of the future, a new ecological climate survival commons where people can come together and share the information that's going to be required to not only survive severe climate events, but begin to reverse course and create a political movement to actually utilize the liberatory potentials of technology. Maybe this ad is brought to you by you. Yeah, silly me. I was thinking like an advertiser and just telling people to stay tuned, stay tuned, stay tuned. But this could be bi-directional. You don't just have to stay tuned. You can participate in the world. This isn't actually a real advertisement. You don't just have to stay tuned. There's more to it than that. That's a great point. Thank you. Now back to our show. When we're thinking about the platforms of freedom, the potentials of platforms of freedom, social media and democratic software, context for this that I think is really interesting is this turn of the millennium concept, Web 2.0, this buzz thing in tech circles about basically the shift from the internet being something that's publishers down, webmasters determine the content of websites was Web 1.0 in this vernacular, and then Web 2.0 was when users could participate in the content generation of websites. And the internet became something where access to publishing was sort of democratized. And there were different tools within that infrastructure for how people could interact with each other to create their own web content as users. We take that for granted. That is what the internet is like. But world historically, it's the first medium that we've ever had, this internet, socio-technological, social media, blogging, all this sort of stuff. BBSs. This is the first time that we've had broadcasting be so distributed in the human species. And it's a really interesting thing to reflect on the potentials of. Yeah, the internet is the only medium where the distinction between the creator and the consumer can be blurred. It's not always blurred in all circumstances, but if you've written a book, the person reading the book doesn't have any opportunity to really make changes or to add anything to that. Through collaborative software, you can have writing things where various people can participate or even just having comment sections on things like a centralized place where people can leave their thoughts on an article that's written that you can't change. The possibilities that technology opens up in terms of how we can relate not just to each other, but to our writings, to our knowledge, our data our thoughts and information. There's never been anything like this before in history. 
in terms of the flexibility of what we can do with those relationships, human to human relationships mediated through this technology and human to knowledge and information relationships. Social media websites like Twitter and Facebook, they're the most social, most explicitly social in that you're connecting with friends and so on through them or whatever. Or on Twitter, you're broadcasting your little microphone in the public square. But stuff like Wikipedia, which I think is an incredible human achievement of collaborative commons, of what's possible when people set out to work together in good faith to achieve something, pulling knowledge together. And the same applies for the biggest ebook piracy websites out there, which are just some of the largest libraries in history, just the most accessible lending libraries that are possible to conceive exist right now. They're just criminalized. But that too is this frontier of human freedom. The level of access of pirated or I should say borrowed and loaned ebooks that I've had across the last 10 years has really shaped my politics, my understanding of history, and I think even who I am as a person to have access to this information. And the same goes for the Pirate Bay and Napster and all this stuff. It's all social in a sense because of the collaborative nature of sharing this stuff in these peer-to-peer spaces. And I think those things like Wikipedia and ebook library websites and piracy websites broadly are a little bit more reflective of the potential of democratic social software in the future than current social media like Facebook is. One thing that's super interesting about Wikipedia and the human interfacing nature of it, there's this social development of it in the first place, but also the way that it's designed isn't necessarily just to get profit or to keep people angry or doom scrolling or whatever. And yet at the same time, there is a bit of that, I don't even necessarily want to call it addictive potential, but there's a way that people engage with this platform that I think has opened up a new frontier of freedom that a lot of people have actually experienced in their life, which is falling down Wikipedia rabbit holes. We've always had encyclopedias in human history and libraries that exist. You could potentially have just opened up an encyclopedia to something you found interesting and then followed references to other related articles and to learn more and fallen down this same rabbit hole. It was possible with books and encyclopedias and libraries, but the amount of effort that it took was so high. But what this technology has allowed you to do is just click the link and read part of the article that you find interesting and then follow it to something else and something else. And then before you know it, you've been learning for an hour instead of doom scrolling Twitter. I much prefer those times where I'm lost on the internet than the times when I'm on Twitter. And I think it has to do with the fact that Wikipedia is about sharing information among humans together and Twitter is about keeping you. Quote tweeting people saying, Jesus Christ, what a moron. (laughs) (laughs) Over COVID, I used Twitter way more than I'd ever had before. And these urges within myself to ratio and insult people personally, it's like the ring from Lord of the Rings or something. This matrix of this certain type of weird Twitter negativity that I get pulled into by this fucking front page thing showing me like tweets from people I don't like who have been liked by some people I follow that are like really inflammatory. And then I'm like, uh, and then I'm like, I want to tell them. (laughs) It's all just this big sick game to the algorithm. It's not even like people are sitting there being like, let's make them do this. 
They're like, oh, let's try out a bunch of different ways for the algorithm to run and then see what increases stickiness, see what people respond to, and then do whatever that is. So like the machine is just running its own show, just doing whatever works and whatever works doesn't work for people. Anyways, on the issue of Wikipedia, it just occurred to me, you know how on like Spotify, people can see what you're listening to and you can see what other people are listening to? Yeah. I most of the time don't really want to be telling everyone I know what I'm listening to. It's just a personal preference. But I'd love to be able to be part of a community where we could see what Wikipedia pages the other people were reading and have like conversations about these wiki rabbit holes. How can we bring a social element into the wiki rabbit hole to encourage people to go on these learning adventures? Maybe even going on learning adventures that extend beyond Wikipedia, like a fisherman coming back from sea with a big catch of information, updating Wikipedia to make it even better. That's a really beautiful idea. I think that happens in the Wikipedia community through more informal networks on IRC and stuff where people have a socially mediated, encouraging each other to participate in the process, which is part of what makes it work. But the thought of integrating it technologically really tickled me. No, yeah, absolutely. Because that information, what you're reading exists now, that's data. And you can use that to our advantage in certain ways to put it in a situation where people who want to share that information with each other can. The sorts of like endless number of information tubes and storage bins that is the internet. You just have to hook the right tubes up to the right bins to get people the information that they want when they want it to get the metaphorical book of the information packet, however big it actually is, to the reader looking at the screen or the watcher if it's a video or the listener getting the info to the interested conscious observer is this game of defining all these relationships. It is social. It's socially mediated information and how we use that to define these institutional forms of interaction with each other in the online sphere. This makes me want to drop the holistic pill here. And (laughs) when it comes to Web 2.0 generally, social media generally, and democratic software generally, social media is inherently democratic. And these information commons, these collaborative commons like Wikipedia, ebook piracy websites, and other similar things are also in themselves social and are in themselves democratic, or they have elements of what could become the democracy of the future. My mind is just reeling with possibilities. Imagine if there was a social media platform where instead of having this little trumpet where you simultaneously feel like your timeline belongs to you and if people step on your property and are <laughs> and don't obey the house rules, you're mad at them. Something I've felt a little bit, I've also observed in others. Even though the system is actually broadcasting what you're saying, like a megaphone to strangers, so it's not really fair to get mad at people for showing up in your mentions because you showed up in their timeline first by the metric of what was going to make engagement for the system. Instead of having that, what if instead of having to make a little comment or compose a little thing that's your name and then your message, and it's like the me, 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 this is what I think kind of message. What if the way that you would update other people about what's going on in your life is by reading or participating in the editing of, of information that what was being fed to each other in our feeds was seeing, oh, Aaron has been reading Wikipedia pages on ancient Chinese history, and he's actually been making edits to the Han Dynasty page to add some 
information from a book that he's been reading. And that's what's showing up in my feed instead of your quick take of the news of the day and who's in the good pile and who's in the bad pile. That'd be such a beautiful way to experience the internet. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be as high and mighty as what am I learning about? Even things as simple as it's not that people don't do this online already. I understand it's a big part of Pinterest, but like what recipe is Sean cooking right now? If there's just like a status thing and it's like, I can see what you're eating, <laughs> you know, maybe nine times out of 10, you don't want to comment on it. But one time it's like, what was that, that meal that was going on? I'm interested in that. I might start a conversation about <laughs> eating food, which is a thing that all people tend to enjoy. It can be a social thing. There's so much social information that could be presented in various ways with people's consent and desire to do so that enrich our relationships to one another rather than cultivate cynicism about the nature of humans because of poorly incentivized behavior. The recipe thing reminded me of, there's this line in Bo Burnham's new special uh, in the song, Welcome to the Internet. There's this brilliant line that just been stuck in my head since I heard it, which is, He's like doing an impersonation of a news feed and he's saying, here's a, here's a tip for draining pasta and a nine-year-old who died. <laughs> that just really pings the part of me that feels like my brain is being shuffled like a deck of cards every day when I log on. And I'm just seeing all this random shit in this completely incoherent order and it's all jumbled in one place. Everything that we are as individuals is all put onto one timeline. It's like if you post about politics, then you're a political person. You have one profile. This is the place where I share my recipes, my opinions on the government, <laughs> pictures of my kids, and memes about communism. These digital systems are set up in this way that's just shuffling all this random novelty at us, where you just constantly have to reevaluate where we are in the context. So you're seeing a nine-year-old who died and a tip for draining pasta at the same fucking time. It would be great if the app space, the software space, could allow for more fracturing of our attention to specific things at a time. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking of how many current events I have learned about because first I see a hot take that doesn't really make sense referencing something. So then I have to Google the something, find the initial articles that are already kind of at it. They're like six hours ago now, get caught up and then get back to like, it's just the worst way to be introduced to the fact that there was another shooting or that here in Canada, we just found a second mass grave of indigenous children at a residential school. And the way I want to learn about that is not through weird side references and then trying to figure out what just happened. I want there to be a bin of extremely upsetting world news. And it's like, oh, there's a new one in there. Maybe I should open that up and see what it is. And it's presented in a way that helps you understand what's going on first. And then maybe you can start getting into the hot takes and stuff. It's just not designed in a human-facing way to help me learn what I would need to learn about the world in the best way possible, like at all. Yeah, and there's all these weird... I don't even know if anyone thinks you're supposed to do it, but there's just all this strange subcultural stuff around how these platforms are used, particularly in political communities. 
I think there's probably people who use Twitter and Facebook and don't experience all this. I would call it like insinuation whiplash is my main issue with leftist internet spaces where someone's like, imagine thinking this. And I was like, <laughs> oh, what am I supposed to think instead? And there's another person who's like, well, someone who said this is this. They wear a hat. And it's like, I don't understand the reference point for that hat. And then it's like someone else is coming, <laughs> coming in with like this other smug layered take. It's like, wow, everyone in this thread is really sympathizing a lot more with this historical leader than I expected. And I was like, wait, is this about a historical leader? It's this signaling pile. No one says what they think. To make an affirmative, positive assertion of something and say, this is how it is. This is what I think is incentivized against because it can be attacked and picked at. The evolutionary mimetic strategy that people have figured out in this brand sphere of insinuations is to be criticizing people in ways that imply there's something wrong with the other person about that person's character, that it's a character issue on the other end, and completely evasive to making a positive, uh, and I don't mean positive as in like happy, I mean positive as in an assertion of something, not just a negation. It's completely incentivized against it through these spaces. And I think a lot of this is social, but the technology doesn't help either. People are involved in this process of tearing each other down, tearing things down, but there's a strong incentive against the positive assertion. There's no place to put a citation. You can't make a claim and then be like, that claim is substantiated by this. Like imagine if on internet debates, you could highlight a claim that someone made and then pop up some sort of second lens on the conversation where there could be a meta discourse on the evidence or lack thereof of various claims. So you could have a nested multi-layered discussion about complex issues. Would that prevent conflict? Probably not. Would it be annoying sometimes? Yes. Would people have conflicting evidence sometimes and not come to conclusions? Yes. But is that a step towards a system that incentivizes understanding and participation in a meaningful way? I, I really think so. I'd really value space on website for doing things like that. It's like Web 3.0 would be pulling this off correctly. Like Not only are people participating in the making of the knowledge and the discourse and stuff like that, but they're involving themselves in each other's participation in the discourse in a structured way that's designed to hopefully create conclusions, but at the very least create an increased understanding. That would be really great to see. I would really love to play around with something like that. Yeah, rather than everybody getting to have the megaphone turning it into a more explicitly social, relational, interactional thing where you can iterate conversations into certain rabbit holes while not interrupting the main flow, etc. Everyone doesn't have a megaphone, but we're talking to each other. It's a conversation. It's an actually social space. Because I feel like the everyone has a megaphone mindset is a bit of what's wrong with it sometimes, is that we're screaming out into this poorly categorized void of people being presented your thoughts, whether they're in the right headspace for them or not. So yeah, putting things in the right bins and designing the ways that we relate to one another on these things as two-way relationships where you can meaningfully participate and come to meaningful conclusions because we've iterated this process enough times that we start to learn what helps people come to meaningful conclusions, what works and what doesn't. That's the direction. That's what I think we need to do. We now go to an announcement from Facebook, the corporation, and their founder, Mark Zuckerberg, about the future of the company. 
I'm super excited for Facebook's future. Facebook has always been about connecting people. When we started Facebook back in 2007, I never dreamed how many people we'd be able to connect. But Facebook is also about honesty. I'm joined tonight by a dear friend of mine. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have him with me on stage here. I met him at a party, and Facebook's always been about connecting people, but I'd say that me and him really connected off of Facebook. Yeah, that's true. You My know, cool new friend taught me. Yeah, you tell him. Go ahead. One simple idea. What did I tell you? Honesty is virtue, and honesty in name is virtue in name. Facebook is a name that's overstayed its welcome. Facebook is a name that made sense at the time, but hasn't kept up with our developing and changing world. I mean, Facebook's not a book at all. And faces play a small part of the infrastructure of Facebook, but it's not reflective of Facebook as a whole. Do you want to tell them what you were telling Yeah, me? I told them at the party, I told them, if I'm going to a Facebook, I'm expecting pages and each page to have a face on it. And that's it. Maybe a little bit of metadata. When I go to Facebook, there's all kinds of things going on that aren't that. So maybe that's what it should be called, don't you think? And that made a lot of sense to Mark, didn't it, Mark? It makes a lot of sense. The name Facebook refers to a face and a book, which Facebook has almost none of. And if I want to earn the trust, if we want to earn the trust at Facebook of cool guys at parties and, and, and tough and cool guys, Facebook is about connecting people. And we need to connect people with an honest name, a name which reflects what we do. So we're changing our name. Facebook will no longer be called Facebook. Facebook will now be called Data on your physical location, data on your likes and dislikes and preferences, and records of your private conversations with your friends and family for sale to advertisers and police departments around the world, Incorporated. Now, when I met Mark, I didn't think he was going to step up. <laughs> I didn't think he cared about being honest. Well, I showed you. I'm not a naive person. I know how big an ask this was to change Facebook's name to something honest. And I knew I was going in to mark our social interaction in which we met in the physical space, not a digital space, trying to make a difficult case and that virtue doesn't always win out in the world. But to Mark's credit, he did it. The papers have been filed and the name has changed. Although I do have a couple notes. I thought of some new things maybe we might want to add in there. Well, I'm all ears. Just making a distinction between that we technically have legal consent, but not really meaningful consent from people to do this. That might be good to include in some way. We're about connecting people. And if we need to be connecting to people through the honesty of a name, yes, we'll have to update to include some information on that for our users. You're right. So what do you think? Am I... Uh... Am I cool? I think names that reflect the business model of the company that they are naming, that's pretty cool. No, but you're a cool guy. I met you at a party and... I guess if you want to frame it that way. I, I want to know. I'm asking. I kind of I, I don't believe in that. Do you think that I am cool for that? Because I've, you, that's one way. People are being connected. That's one way to... The Facebook difference. Frame it. Or it's not the Facebook difference anymore, remember. Maybe we'll get a, an acronym set up. It's a long one. So, you know, Doppley, Lad, Ropa, Faf, Stapt. We'll figure it out. I think we can just say the full name every time. It is a beautiful name. You know what? I don't believe in categorizing people as cool or not cool, but I like that you like the full name every time. That's cool. We could shorten it to location data, private conversations for sale to cops. That's about as short as it can get, but it sounds like music to my ears. You're really onto something there, Mark. You're onto something. It's, it's getting at the core of it. 
I don't know if you're cool, but that's a pretty cool thing, I'd say. Thank you. I, I think you're cool too. Yeah, it's kind of what I said. So with the pandemic and stuff, it's been a pretty like extremely online year for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people feel very, very online in ways that they haven't before. I think I sort of fit in that category myself. Something you run into on the internet is people saying touch grass or the internet isn't real life. And I've always had a problem with that in the sense that I feel like the internet is part of real life. It's digital space, but it's still a space and it's still part of real life. And what happens there is real. And affects the world. <laughs> yeah, the people you meet on dating apps, you end up reading in real life a lot of the time. There's a lot of things like that. People get married because they met on a dating app, or people have marketplace spaces where they put up their wares and then they meet up with strangers and make $300 transactions, right. trusting that the materials are delivered in good order and will work on like Craigslist or Kijiji and stuff like that. Also, reviews and restaurants affect the way that people perceive restaurants when they're trying a new place or whatever. They might look up reviews or reflections, or if they're considering buying some supplements, they might Google whether or not it's a cult or a scam. <laughs> Is this a pyramid scheme? There's that social intelligence of information being passed on over the internet that adds this sort of like meta layer to reality. There's this almost digital layer to our day-to-day -day life this ghost-like phantasm of ones and zeros being projected from our pockets to cell towers and to Wi-Fi stations that creates this real but untouchable, only visible through imagery, only visible through screenshots, <laughs> layer to reality that has profound effects on our day-to-day -day life. So yeah, I feel like the internet is not only real life, but is one of the defining features of life in our time. I totally agree. I was thinking with the dating app example, how when I was a kid, when I was like a teenager and I was in the closet, I was imagining what if there was a way to, I didn't use these words at the time, but sort all the people around me to kind of know who might be into some gay stuff or not. And we have that now and it's like dating apps and you can't necessarily know about any person that you see and it's probably a good thing that it doesn't work that way. But sometimes you can, you open up, especially the location-based ones and be like, oh, is this person I'm seeing near me on this app? <laughs> and if they are, then it's a way to start a conversation. It has measurable real-world effects on people's ability to interact with each other in ways that they want to that are beneficial. And I feel like having this conversation talking about the platforms of freedom, the distinction between face-to-face -face democracy and online democracy, I think that we can have internet-enabled real democratic institutions that are designed with the intention of helping people come to decisions together using all sorts of different types of incentives to engage in conversations and voting at certain times and understanding how votes are tabulated and the ability to hand your votes off to other people, the ability to engage in real-time conversations in digital spaces or physical spaces that are mediated through this democratic platform. Putting the engineering marvel that we put towards helping people date or helping gay people find each other through this digitally mediated space 
towards the project of democracy and not just online democracy, but real world democracy, which is partially online, partially in physical spaces and is affecting the actual institutions of power in society. Yeah, absolutely. Something that comes to mind on this sort of sphere of augmented reality, this digital matrix that binds us and unites us and allows us to sort each other, sort information, and the liberatory potential of that feels really huge. And obviously, that liberatory potential, it can't really be activated to its full potential unless we set out to make it a project for its own sake and not for the purposes of trying to figure out where do we have investors? What's our profitability plan? Who are we going to sell the data to? And all this sort of stuff that comes part and parcel with the Silicon Valley marketing matrix where our technological innovation primarily comes from in our current society. The potential is so huge. And I want to try to integrate in the positive potential of that, which is a staggering thing to even summarize the different ways that this is potentially liberatory. For example, you can imagine within a democratic space, being able to convey information to each other, like at Occupy camps, at the General Assembly, they used a certain subtype of anarchist hand gestures. But it was really great because you use these hand gestures while other people were talking, and it allowed a rich fluency of conversation that was beyond people waiting their turns to speak, because what they really had to say, they could say really quickly through their hands, like, I agree, or I don't agree, I have strong reservations about this, that sort of thing. And that mixed with facial expressions, and things that allowed people to intervene with a point of information where it's like, by putting up your fingers, like I have a point of information. What that meant is I have something that's a fact that's relevant to this discussion. And I'm going to say that and nothing else. And these are like sort of democratic innovations that these are common practice among democratic anarchists beyond the Occupy movement. But that's where I became familiarized with it. So imagining a layered digital conversation where there can be different layers of information being conveyed within a certain meeting or collaboration and stuff like that. I think one of the things that people are worried about when it comes to face-to-face direct democracy is this sense of really, really big meetings where people are waiting their turn to speak. People talk too long at the mic. They don't get to the point about things. And it's like a tedious process that takes a long time to come to conclusions. And that's based on some experiences that people have, even experiences from Occupy, which by the way, we're approaching the 10-year anniversary of. What are we going to do about it? I'll just put a pin in that till later, but... One can imagine something that uses all the benefits of the face-to-face realm, the way that we can be present with each other and be co-developing political subjects side-by-side as empowered political subjects, which is the beautiful thing about direct democracy and something that I felt really strongly when I participated in these processes at Occupy. Imagining a digital layer to this that allows for that productive, multifaceted participation is something I find really inspiring. Imagine if the chemtrails person who somehow wrestles the talking stick and gets the mic is actually cut off after two minutes because the platform prevents it from going on too long. I don't know, it's a random example, but just the idea that you can have these combinations of very social elements along with formats that actually help keep things moving and do some of the things that a really good moderator could do, but that are sometimes socially awkward, like, oh, you're going over time. You know, not everyone's like voted to have you keep going because it's such a great speech. Maybe you can incorporate that somehow. But yeah, you had your two minutes. If you want to talk more about chemtrails next time, uh, that's still allowed for now. So uh, I love that idea of you having like an algorithm where I've thought about this at places where there's people going up to the mic to ask questions and they're doing their long speech 
before they get to their question. And it's like, man, just get a podcast. It's pretty easy. Um, <laughs> I always felt like it'd be so good if it was just a social norm for people to start raising their hands when they felt that it was time to wrap up and having the whole audience all raise their hands. It could be a polite, friendly meta gesture, like the twinkle fingers that occupy that say, I agree. That's just like, hey, wrap it up, man. And then like it distributes the responsibility. It allows the people who really care about that kind of thing to sort of set the bellwether on it. You could do that digitally as well. Like you said, if someone comes up, the standard is two minutes, and then people really like what they're saying and they want to give them more space, they could be like, hey, I nominate them for extra 30 seconds. And then across this platform, everyone could be agreeing with that or disagreeing with that. It could fail or succeed. And if it succeeds, they could be aware that their clock has updated, which might be a nice boost to their confidence and might push them to really dig deep about what they want to say. Maybe the dopamine would cause them to get confused and fuck up or something <laughs> like that. But we'd have to try it out. But also just having the cane that pulls the person off stage be democratically distributed feels like a really positive step up from getting a benevolent curator to try to figure it out. Because one of the benefits of face-to-face -face democracy over Zoom versus in person, all those also downsides, is that the process of removing someone isn't an awkward and prolonged and over-serious affair. It can be part of the culture of the organization to not violate boundaries that cause everyone to excommunicate you for the rest of the meeting. You got the democratic boot. There was a consensus that everyone everyone agreed you had to go. Yeah. It's a little bit harsh, but sometimes it does come to that. And one of the issues with these democratic things in person is sometimes it's just too awkward for the person who has to do it to be like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, no, no. yeah Google chemtrails, guys. Yeah, okay, whatever. Like, That's good enough. And the problem with having those kinds of mini little democratic moments within the process in a face-to-face -face setting, or at least using manual tools, let's say, is the same thing as like, why you can't go down a Wikipedia rabbit hole using physical books in the library. It's just too much work. It's too much work to hold a vote every time someone's talking to see whether people want them to keep talking at the same time as they're taught. Like, it doesn't work with manual tools, but it's something that you can do with these digital platforms that is now possible, but we haven't done it yet, really. Yeah, and one of the beautiful things about face-to-face -face democracy is seeing people in person and being able to read their cues and stuff like that. There's some subtle issues with this in terms of who we tend to trust or not trust can be based on distortions in society. There's also the ableism element of if you have the sense of, oh, everyone has to be super, super quick, 60 seconds, one minute. But there's people who, in order to give participation according to need and to give people space to say what they need to say, there does need to be space for people who, for example, have a stutter or have challenges with public speaking or anxiety. And there's a lot of different ways that institutions that aren't mediated by technology can leave people behind and make it so that not everyone's voice is given appropriate weight. And there's also obviously things like sexism and racism as well. In hierarchical society, looking down on the contributions of people from certain communities there's tons of different ways that that can happen. And some of those differences actually require, and particularly around ableism, a shift of expectations based on need. And technology in a lot of ways can help enable that as well. Someone might have the option to record a statement ahead of time and put in a statement. It's again, face to face, but they're able to do more than one take, or they're able to cut out pauses, or there's a variety of different ways that technology can help close the gaps that make democratic participation 
hard and can also fill gaps in democratic discourse where issues and the conclusions arise because of bias, bad information, lack of fact-checking, lack of meta-discussion, and so on like that. So there's a massive potential to overlay the socio-technological, the digital realm on top of the democratic sphere of face-to-face democracy or integrated and vice versa. It's a frontier that we as human beings can set out to achieve, and I think we should. I don't think we should be afraid of the technological frontier when it comes to democracy. I think we should use it to its full potential and stay rooted in what principles make democracy such a beautiful and meaningful thing about making every voice matter and having a fair system to come to conclusions together so people aren't making decisions about each other's lives and they have a say in the things that affect them. Yeah. I think one of the main worries about digital democracy is obviously the idea that it could be manipulated in some way, the votes can be hacked, etc. But that comes down to systems designs. Like one of the benefits of how this stuff works is you can design things to be extremely transparent and with a huge paper trail, so to speak. Um, I just want to plant a flag that that kind of stuff can be taken care of. But there's so much potential here for technological assistance in mediating our social relationships to come to group decisions together that it's such a big conversation. It's hard to encapsulate all of it. Like even just as you were talking now, I was thinking about if it became standard practice for the next person to speak, to start a few minutes before they actually start. So that thinking about how we edit our podcast and cut out silences, cut out filler words, even if you start your two minute statement a few minutes beforehand, and then every time you pause for 15 seconds to collect your thoughts, it can automatically cut that out so it's not taken out of your two minutes. There's so much potential that could help make this stuff flow better for everyone and be a more enjoyable experience for everyone and actually help people engage in this process in a way that they want to and that gives them the voice that we want a democratic society to give to everybody. It's just staggering how much is possible with digitally mediated space of information tubes, information bins that connect people to each other with data in between them. I could just sit here for hours imagining different potential things that could make this better for people. There's an antecedent of this frontier of layers of information on the political and democratic context. There's something that's a long tradition within meetings sort of fits in the same broad category, although it's it's a pretty rudimentary version of it. It's meeting minutes. What meeting minutes do is create a platform of information about previous meetings. They create a record of the meetings that is supposed to be a record of what happened and not a record of what should be done and so on, except maybe to quote participants and what they're saying. Meeting minutes is a sort of socio-technological innovation in that it gives the group of people doing a meeting a superpower, which is perfect memory when it comes to all meetings, which disencourages people lying about what they said or flip-flopping between different meetings in ways that are manipulative or deceptive or even just out of innocent misunderstandings or misrememberings can be cleared up by looking at the record. It introduces as all technological things, this point of failure, which is the person who's taking the meeting minutes is in charge of the narrative of what happened at the meeting if it's just done by an individual. So there is sort of a dark side to it that it can be used 
in this anti-social way, this, this innovation that can help everyone. And the same is true for social technology. And the same is true for what we're proposing broadly for face-to-face democracy mediated by these information streams and layered information to create new ways of gamifying and participating in the democratic process. It too has that same dark side. Whose guidelines are you following? And what is the information being used for? And can you trust the facilitators of the information? Can you trust the continuity of the records? It's an incredible tool that comes with the capacity to become a way that power is misused over people. But in that same sense, all these positive benefits of taking meeting minutes, and you have a specialized person within that system who takes those meeting minutes on behalf of everyone that helps ideally the whole group work cohesively, that principle can be scaled up to larger meetings as well with even more specialized roles that are doing even more specialized things that helps a group of people work on a higher level of organization than they could as individuals because different people are taking up different pieces of the meeting infrastructure to ensure this human mega mind is able to like form and make decisions. And technology isn't the only way we can do this. And I think actually, in fact, we could probably do that entirely without technology and achieve incredible great things if we played around with it and found out what worked over time through experimentation. But with technology in particular, I think it's a really powerful idea that could really change the game on what democracy means for the next thousand years, the next thousand years of world peace under fully luxurious library socialism. Yeah, because I think the social processes that we can come up with in manual environments like meeting minutes or little points of process like holding up a finger to indicate something rather than needing to state it out loud, if you can transfer those into a digital space, they all of a sudden have this hyper-powered, infinitely iterable potential backing them up. So much more becomes possible when you're dealing with digital tools rather than manual tools. But it's a lot of the time doing the same thing. But it's a weird double point to make that they're unnecessary for actually finding out how to do this stuff, but they're an amazing resource for finding ways to do things in very efficient ways and finding these spaces where you can stack efficiencies on one another to a point where new possibilities open up things like being able to carry out a vote about who holds the cane rather than just voting in the person who gets to make that decision, which might be the more remedial version of it. So it's both important to note that like forms of freedom don't need digital spaces, digital processing power, but the digital platforms are providing new vistas of potential in these spaces. Well, that was a really stimulating conversation to have. Thanks for having with me, Aaron. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having it with me as well. I agree. Stimulating. Brain stimulating, mostly. And to all the beautiful geniuses listening out there tonight. (laughs) And to all the beautiful geniuses. Well, thank you for your time and attention and thought for these issues and other issues that matter and issues that have, I think, the potential We have opportunities in our lifetime to really change the user experience of human beings and change the relationship between human beings and planet Earth, the developmental trajectory which gave rise to us that we owe metaphorical debt to sustain, uphold, give opportunity to thrive. I think we can do that in our lifetime, to be honest. And I think the big force that's going to do that is the power of ideas, including the ideas that make up the code on computers. The digital space is going to be one of the major frontiers that we see the transitionary politics of a better society 
take root and take form. I think we've already seen this happen. And I think there's a lot of reasons to be cautiously optimistic, but also engaged in the process of continuing that. So I want to thank you all for being donors to the show. And again, just for your time and attention, because there's a lot of things you could be doing, but you thought about these things. And I think these things are pretty important, which is why I wanted to talk about them, why we wanted to talk about them. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I agree. Thank you. Next time on Seriously Wrong, Sean pitches Aaron on his idea of democracy walks. Okay, so a democracy walk, it's something you do after dinner. Everyone does it after dinner. And you have like a VR headset on. So like you're walking with your family, but you're not really talking to each other necessarily. But you're like, Uh, it's still a bonding exercise. The VR Um, headset, so that you can't see what's going on. When I have a VR headset on, I can't see what's going on in the world around me. Sorry, it's augmented. Yeah, it's augmented reality, not total VR. Sorry, augmented reality. Actually, very little, very little of your visible sphere should be filled up with any information from the voting software. And it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like a uh, like a meditation app or something like that, and that it's paced kind of slow, but you're brought into random decision-making processes on a sortition type basis and so you can see everyone in the community is walking around with their augmented reality headsets you know going for that after dinner walk so they get some nice digestion going have a nice nice belly going so is that everyone who's everyone who's voting on one thing walks to the same place together is that the augmented reality part or what everyone is voting on different things because of sortition and they're voting on unrelated things to what they're seeing outside. The walking is just for their health. It's a co- sort of a cultural, political practice to incorporate, you know, about 45 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half, depending on how much you like politics, of walking after dinner to really involve yourself in the decision making. That's the idea of a democracy walk. Um, are people ready for it? Maybe not, but. <laughs> oh, so the so the walking's not necessarily necessary. Like people could still participate in this ritual in ways other than walking if they maybe uh, can't walk or if they're just too tired that day or something, but they still want to get their democracy in. Absolutely, I think the most important part is having there be something. I know. I think moving is therapeutic. Like moving around towards the horizon is therapeutic, and you sure. can do that with or without walking. You could. As long as the AR is set up in such a way that prioritizes safety, um, limits interference in the field of vision. But I, I think it could be similar to like talking on the phone or something like that, which people are able to do in a variety of contexts. But also the relaxation. It's got to be a leisure thing. That's, so I think you could have a democracy bath, democracy koozie, an after dinner. Uh, that could be an afternoon democracy thing. I don't know. I'm open to ideas, too. So That, that makes um, sense, too, because, yeah, some people might not want to walk right after dinner, especially if it was a big dinner. Um, but if you just have, like, a, a democracy bath, that might feel more like a digestion moment after dinner. 